So Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togormah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Hut, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabtika. The sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt, fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kastlohim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hararam, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abmael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, you have breathed this out. You have included it in your divine word to point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we look to this with bewilderment, pray that you would give us faith. That we would see here the lessons that you would have for us. That we would see Christ glorified here. And that we'd better understand the big story of what you're doing in redemption. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Like. It could be wrong about this. Maybe it's one of those just from my perspective things. But I think most people have someone, if you go far enough out, someone in their extended family 
who likes to trace family lines. So for my family, it's my great aunt on my dad's mother's side. I remember going to her house once and being fascinated to find out that my family was distantly related to Grover Cleveland. But it might have been James Garfield. I don't remember. (laughs) I just remember being nine or ten years old and thinking that our family was famous and bragging about it to my fifth grade teacher. And she was not impressed. Turns out, we're actually not famous. But family trees have that purpose, don't they? they? They help you in space and time to orient yourself in history and geography. They tell you in some ways who you are, where you come from. Well, Moses, the author of Genesis, moves us from Genesis chapter 9, where we were last week with Noah and his sons, and he propels us forward in the story of redemption several generations down the line. He's going forward, fast-forwarding into the future with this massive family tree. It's almost like a picture that's worth a thousand words, although he uses a thousand words. So here, here we are, this massive family tree that is Genesis 10, and it's a big family tree. But the first thing I want to show you about this tree this morning is that this tree is not as big as it could be, right? It's not an exhaustive list of everyone who descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth in these generations. In fact, we don't even get most of who descended from these guys. So take, for instance, Japheth's line. I don't know if you can read that, uh, but you can at least see the lines and the way that they're spread out. Japheth has seven sons. But of those seven sons that are listed here, only two of them, Gomer and Javan, have their sons listed out from them. There's nothing said here about Magog or Madai, Tubal, Meshach, or Tiras. Ham's tree, and I don't have a chart for this one. I tried to make one, but it just is too, too small. Ham's tree is also missing some branches, though, if you look at it. Ham has four sons, but the family lines of only three of those sons are listed here. Put's branch has got no twigs on it. And then from Cush's line, one of Ham's sons, only Ra'ama's son, Sheba and Dedan are mentioned, but not the names of Cush's other five sons. Egypt's branch is completely different. Rather than the names of his sons, we get a list of people groups. That's why they all end in I-M or Im. That's the, the plural marker in their language. So this tree says Egypt fathered the Ludim peoples, the Anamim peoples, the Lehabim peoples, and so on. It's not the names of the sons, but it's the names of the peoples who eventually would come from Egypt's sons. And with Canaan's branch, it's sort of a, a combination of the two. You get two of Canaan's sons' names, Sidon, and that's mentioned because later there's a really important city called Sidon. And then the second son, Heth, is mentioned. And these are, from Heth comes the Hittites, but the Hittites aren't mentioned here. And then all these people groups from Canaan. If you're looking at the text, you see all of these ites. So it's not an exhaustive tree. And really the author tells us in verse 5, this is not an exhaustive family tree. Look what he says in verse 5. From these, which is the sons of Javan, 
the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. In other words, he's saying more spreading on, more spreading out and more unnamed people groups are going to come from Javan. I'm just summarizing them for you. So if this is not an exhaustive chronicling of all the nations that ever were, all the nations even that existed in Israel's day, what is it? Well, it is a family tree, but the the best way to understand Genesis chapter 10 is that this is the the Israelite view of a three-dimensional tree, right? So you're getting the front side of the tree, but you don't see the branches on on the back side. You're only getting the view from one side, And, and what we're seeing here is most of the nations that are particularly relevant to Israel's history. So, for instance, take a look at Canaan's descendants, starting in verse 15 with all of those ites. Israel is going into the, remember, they're they're receiving Genesis, they're receiving the the Torah from, from Moses, and they're going into Canaan. They're going into the land of Canaan, and all of these ites are the tribal names of the peoples that they're going to encounter in that land. So this gives them a a brochure, a yearbook, something like that, of all the people that they're about to meet and conquer. There's also a broader biblical relevance to chapter 10 as well. There are 70 peoples and groups listed here. I know you can't read that, but um, I tried to show you how it's all broken up. You get uh, from Japheth, seven sons and seven grandsons. There's 14. From Ham, you get four sons seven grandsons, three great-grandsons, one Nimrod, and 16 people groups. That's 31. And then from Shem, you get five sons, five grandsons, two great-grandsons, and 13 great-great-grandsons. That's 25. Add them all together, you get 70. There's 70 peoples and groups. And that's significant because 70 is a very significant, it's an important symbolic number for the Jewish peoples. It's a complete number. Seven is a number of completeness, and 10 is another number of completeness. 7 times 10 is thus a number of complete completeness. In other words, I think that what we're seeing is that Noah's offspring, Ham, Japheth, and the non-elect half of Shem's line were fruitful. They multiplied, and they filled the earth completely. What had been emptied or cleansed by the flood has been completely refilled through Noah's descendants. You should also know this, just as, a, as an outsider looking in to, to Genesis 10. This is also a, um, in the history of humanity. This is a very unique table of nations. So if you were to, to look in, in other histories and of the ancient peoples there you would find nothing quite like genesis chapter 10 nothing quite as comprehensive now yes you're going to find if you look in uh, like uh, the mesopotamian area you're going to find lists of kings and how far back they go but you're only going to see lines or lineages for those particular people groups you're not going to see anything as comprehensive as what genesis chapter 10 gives us it's also interesting that this table of nations is is accurate. You think, of course it's accurate. It's in the Bible. But, but when you, when you cross-reference this table, this, this, this family tree, 
and, and you, you compare it to what other nations say, where they say they came from, you're going to see some, a lot of, of parallels. So take the Greek people, for instance. In the Greeks' ancient histories, they say that they originate with a man named Javan. That's what the Bible says. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Bible said it first. You might also be picking up on later people groups from some of these names. The Madai people, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, they will later become the Medes, if you've heard of the Medes and the Persians. If you've heard of the Ashkenazi people, you can see their roots there in, in verse 3 from Ashkenaz. The Assyrians will come from Ashur. The Hebrews will come from Eber. You can hear, do a little experiment with me. You can hear the linguistic connection if you hold your nose. Eber. You could hear the word Hebrew there, can't you? The name Eber comes from a, from a verb which means to pass over. This is important. Let me say that again. The, the name Eber comes from a verb which means to pass over or to pass through. And that, of course, will be very important for the Hebrews in the book of Exodus, won't it? In fact, since that's where this story is ultimately heading, let's take a moment and look closely at Eber's family here. Let's look at how Moses gets us to, to them. The, the way that this whole tree is arranged, just, just as, as an aside, it begins in verses 2 through 5 with Japheth. Why is Japheth listed first? Well, Japheth are the people who will be geographically and politically furthest from the Israelites. So there's not a lot of interaction uh, in, 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 in Genesis uh, with, with the Japhethites. They're further away. That's not to say that the Japhethites are necessarily friendly with Israel. This is probably most clear for us in Ezekiel chapter 38, which is a parallel to Revelation chapter 20. In that chapter, in those chapters, you will find a man or a group of people or a city or something. We're not sure what. But Gog of Magog, you heard of that before? That's a Japhethite city, and that will be the base clamp base camp for satan who deceives the nations and actually if you read ezekiel 38 you're going to see a lot of these nations from genesis 10 listed in ezekiel 38 and all of these nations will rise up against the people of god in the last battle so we're seeing a some seeds of what will later be the case but for moses sake here these japhethites are at least further away from the israelites than the hamite clan so he lists some of these Japhethites first. Then in verses 6 through 20, we get Ham's family with, with uh, Egypt and Canaan and Cush and Put and all the problems that they present. And then third, you get Shem's family. Verses 21 through 31. And as we saw last week, Shem's family has the line of the promised Messiah coming through it. So it makes sense that it would be listed Last, it's, it's the most important. And we're going to see the second half of this family uh, in, in several weeks. Let's look closer at this family. Genesis chapter 10, verse 21. Look away the way the, the, that Moses writes this. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. So already at the introduction to Shem's family line, Eber's family is in focus. Even though he's not Shem's son, 
Heber is actually a couple generations down the line. But Eber is one of Shem's great-grandsons from Arpachshad's line. But because Eber is the, is the father of the Hebrews, Hebrews, his name is being front-loaded here in Shem's family tree on this branch. It's Moses' way of showing us Eber is what this family tree is all about. Pay careful attention here, you Hebrew people, because you know where you come from. This is your line. From Eber will come two sons. The promise will go through Peleg, eventually down to Abraham, and that genealogy will come later on in chapter 11, and that's what the rest of Genesis is all about. That's what the rest of the Bible is all about. And that is just about all the time that I'm going to spend on factoids about this tree. All right, with the rest of our time, I want to answer that big question that we have as New Covenant people. Who cares? <laughs> right? So obviously, this is important for Israel. But beyond being an, an interesting historical artifact for us that, that uh, historians and seminarians like to study, why should we bother reading chapter 10, let alone studying it closely as a church? Well, there are truths here in Genesis chapter 10 that are easy to overlook because we get caught up trying to pronounce all of these names and all of these nations. And, and as we read in Acts 17 earlier, Paul brings out one of these truths in his sermon to the people in Athens. Let me read it or show it to you again from Acts chapter 17, verse 26. This is Paul's observation about Genesis 10. He says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. Did you, as we read this, you saw all the boundaries. These people lived in this area. These people lived in this area. These people lived in this area. They all come from one man, Noah. You get one man and then his three sons and then every nation of mankind spread across the world with their geographical boundaries listed. Paul's reminding us, he's reminding the Athenians, that all of humanity, all of us, have a common ancestor. There's a sameness about us that we easily forget about. Yes, we are divided up into tribes and people groups and nations, languages. And from there, we all eventually took on distinctive characteristics, skin color differences, hair texture differences, height differences, the shape of our heads and foreheads and jaws and the color of our eyes and the length and the width of our noses. Paul's teaching us that God did that intentionally. It was a part of his plan. God made the nations. They're not an accident. He assigned peoples to various places on the earth and even put timers on how long certain peoples would live in those certain places. And as a result, humanity, de humanity developed different languages and technologies and strengths and arts and music and foods and cultures. There's, there's a beauty and a wonder to all of it. And all of it is meant for God's glory. No single culture, no matter how great a nation is, no single culture, even with all of its strengths, can bear the image of God alone. God is too glorious for that. All of the nations together can't even come to 
come close to estimating the splendor of God. But together, all of the nations are meant for his glory, and we are all meant to worship him. One day, peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation will be regathered around God's throne through the work of Christ. And Isaiah tells us that the wealth of all of those, all of those nations will be brought to the Lord. Let me show you what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 60. This is talking about the, the day to come, the day of Messiah. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. That doesn't just mean money. If you keep reading in Isaiah 60, you'll find that there will be camels and gold and frankincense from Midian and Ephah and Sheba. And they're all coming, Isaiah says, proclaiming the, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news. And then he tells us that there will be sheep and goats from Kedar, rams from Nebaioth, ships from Tarshish. Now, how are ships going to get to Jerusalem? It's a good question. It should affect the way you think about Scripture. And, and then he says there will be an assortment of, of lumber coming down from Lebanon, all sorts of different trees. In other words, the wealth, the good stuff that these nations were known for in Isaiah's day is all being brought to honor Messiah. If Isaiah were to keep writing today, he'd say, and the Canadians would bring maple syrup and fir trees and the best tacos and guitars and beautiful tiles would come from Mexico and hamburgers and pickup trucks from America. And luxury cars and sausages from Germany. And music and singing and dancing and diamonds from Africa. Literature from Russia and art from Italy. And, and curries and beautiful clothing from India. And poetry from Scotland and noodles and silk from China. We could keep going and I hope I haven't offended anybody. Or everyone, I guess. All that makes the nations distinct and beautiful is meant for and will be brought to glorify King Jesus. There will, in the new creation, be a, a Christ-glorifying unity resulting from this diversity of the nations. That's what is to come. That is the purpose of Genesis 10, according to Paul and Isaiah. In the meantime, there are some pitfalls that result from our diversity. And we need to watch out for sin sinful tendencies that arise from the reality of these differences. Our sinful temptation is to take this, this means that God uses for His glory, and we make that means an end in itself. That is, we become tribalistic. We begin to think of our particular distinctives as things that make us more righteous or 
better as human beings or more acceptable to God somehow. And then, as a result of thinking ourselves better, what do we do? Well, we belittle or enslave or dehumanize other tribes or ethnicities because of their differences. To treat someone as other and therefore lesser and therefore not worthy of dignity. That's racism. It's a sinful denial of the image of God in all of humanity. And this this tendency, sinful tendency, this bent that we have, comes from finding our primary identity in our race or our ethnicity or our tribe. It's important to remember that what makes us distinct from one another as humans is not what defines us as humans. That is, if we go back to Paul's remarks, we need to remember we're all descended from one man. Our ethnicity is not our identity. Neither is our nationality. Our humanity is what defines us. And ultimately, as humans, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. That's where our true identity is. That's what truly defines us, and that's what truly counts. The world Because of the sinfulness of humanity, the world has another idea. Remember what sin is. Sin is a a distortion, a corruption of something that God has made good for good purposes. So the world takes ethnic identity and tries to convince you that that's ultimately who you are. It's what you are. It's all you are. So white people are whiteness. Black people are blackness. Latinos are brownness and so on. And to be even more precise, they will divide it further and further and further and further using sexuality and gender and ability to the point where Eventually, everyone has something against someone else. That is a corruption. It is a distortion of the beauty of God's design. Then again, that's what sinful humanity does. We take God's good design, and we make an upside-down and twisted facsimile of it. And then we revel in it. We'll see that next week with the Tower of Babel. But we even see hints of it here in our text. Let's look at Nimrod for a moment. So go back to Genesis chapter 10. We've already talked about how Moses has front-loaded Eber as the most important descendant of Shem. Well, he does the same thing with Nimrod coming from Cush. In verse 7, Genesis 10, 7, he lists the sons of Cush as Seba, Havla, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabdika. Then he says in verse 8, Cush father Nimrod. But he's not on that list, is he? Presumably, the same way that Shem fathered Eber. Right? So, so Cush is Nimrod's, or rather, uh, yeah, Nimrod is Cush's descendant. So he's using fathered loosely here. What he means is that Nimrod is somewhere down the line of Cush. But he's such an infamous offspring that he outshines whoever it is that he actually directly comes from. So let's continue in verse 8, looking at Nimrod. Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, 
Calna and the land of Shinar. So God's design handed down in Eden. So let's go back in time for a moment, just to give you some framework. You go back to Eden, God's design was that there would be a gradually expanding kingdom of righteousness where people are being pointed to God. Submission to God was, was the goal. Dominion over the earth for humanity in the image of God, bearing the image of God for Christ's glory. However, there are kingdoms, domains, that grow outside of that mandate. That's what I mean by imitation. It's like taking God's design meant for his glory, twisting it for the glory of man instead. Cain did this. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 4, we studied that. As, as, as Cain was exiled further away from God's presence, Cain built a city. He named it after his son. And then there was this violent descendant from Cain named Lamech who corrupted marriage, and he made these unjust laws. All under that twisted domain, that twisted dominion that Cain had created. Or perhaps that the serpent had created through Cain. Well, here, from a similarly serpentine lineage through Ham, then Cush, somewhere down the line, we don't know where, somewhere down the line, we get Nimrod. And Nimrod's name means we shall rebel or we shall revolt. So the, the ESV then says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, we either need to understand this as referring to the earth after the flood. So after the flood, he was the first to be a mighty man. Or you could be saying he began to be a mighty man because of the way the language works. And if you have the ESV Bible, you see a footnote there. Say that, it's got to be one of those two, because if you remember from chapter 6, we've seen mighty men before. So in Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man. I want to preach that sermon again. And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What we translate here as mighty men is the word gibberim, and it could also be warrior or soldier or giant or champion or tyrant or all of the above. So, so Goliath, later on in the Bible, he is a Gibberim bad guy, right? We know that. Gibberim there means giant and warrior. But David also has Gibberim. He has these Gibberim mighty men soldiers who are not giants and they're good guys. So which one is Nimrod? Is he like one of the bad guys or one of the good guys? Well, given our context concerning Nimrod, we know he is an empire builder because he started a whole bunch of famous cities in Shinar. And then, probably after the dispersion from Babel, he went up into Assyria, built more cities there. We also know that these cities, if you look at that list of cities of Nimrod, they are strongholds in his kingdom, because verse 10 says so. So he's a king, he's a ruler of some sort, and given that his capital city is Babel, which we'll learn about next week, that's not a city of virtue. And given that his next most famous city is Nineveh, that's also not a city of virtue. And given that Nimrod's name means we shall rebel, I think what we're seeing with this guy is he's bad. He's a bad guy. He's some sort of violent warrior tyrant who spreads his empire by the sword, which is what it meant by he's a mighty hunter. He spreads his empire by the sword, and he does so to make his own name great and his own kingdom great. All right, so that's Nimrod. Notice how much space Moses gives to teaching us about him. In this, in this 
Chapter 10, this survey, this 32-verse survey of what is probably at least a 1,000 years of history, he slows it all down and zooms way in on Nimrod. Gives him four verses. Why so much attention? What we're to see is that despite the flood, despite the cleansing of the entire earth, the human drive, the impulse for glory in ourselves remains. The flood did not, it could not take away the sin nature. Humanity still has this impulse to compete with God. Nimrod is the the, the manifestation of that. Nimrod, like all of humanity, was given this responsibility of dominion. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, right? He's given the responsibility of dominion for God's glory, and he took that dominion and he used it for himself. He established his own kingdom. He built up these cities to help defend his own kingdom. Cities that are famous for the rebellion against God. Let me read you what Josephus, Jewish historian, says about Nimrod. It says, he persuaded the people to attribute their prosperity, not to God, but to their own valor, which was their own strength, their own power. Believe in yourself, right? And little by little, transformed the state of affairs into a tyranny. Holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his own power. Let me just read that last part again. Because this is written in the first century. Sounds like it was written in Washington, D.C. Holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his own power. Now, Genesis 10 doesn't explicitly say that, does it? About Nimrod. Josephus, who may or may not have been a Christian, we're not sure, but Josephus is summarizing for us what the Jewish teachers taught about Nimrod. This is how they understood Nimrod in Genesis 10. He was a tyrannical empire builder who led people away from God. In Genesis, we can see that Nimrod is following in Cain's footsteps which means he's being influenced by the serpent. But in in the context of Scripture, we can see, see, yes, he's a real person, but he's also a type of men who will follow him. One of many rulers throughout biblical history who would rule for their own glory. This is the type of rulers that Nebuchadnezzar would come from, not coincidentally, coincidentally, a man who also ruled over Babylon. And then Belshazzar would come acting like God. And Darius would come, acting like God. And Antiochus would come, acting like God. And the Caesars would come, acting like God. On down the line, tyrants who follow Nimrod and making themselves out to be gods. Whenever a government or a king or a leader attempts to eclipse their God-given role and seeks to become godlike, they will do so by attempting to turn the heads of the people away from God and towards themselves. And this inevitably results in tyranny. 
Well, the interesting thing about Nimrod is that most of us have never heard of him. You don't remember him. In fact, if he weren't here in Genesis 10, you and I wouldn't even know who he was. Despite his his rebellion against God and his desire to be great and establish empires, he's forgotten. He's nothing but another imposter, an insurgent, dead and gone. If it weren't for the Bible and for our remembrance of Christ and his work, we would never remember Nimrod at all. This morning, we're going to gather around this table together as the people of God. And we're going to remember the work of the descendant of Eber who established the most important kingdom ever in a most unlikely way. He did not do it by way of the sword or by tyranny or by blaspheming God, or turning the heads of the people away from God. Now our king, who though he actually was and is God, did not count his equality with God as a thing to be used for his own advantage. He humbled himself and established God's kingdom through dying. In what appeared to be a failure, our Christ was conquering the domain of darkness. In what looked to the world's eyes to be foolishness, King Jesus was subduing the world, not by building massive cities to the sky, but by descending. Descending to the earth, and then descending even further into the depths of the earth. To the cross and the grave, Jesus conquered. Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death, and he was vindicated elevated, lifted up by God through the resurrection, and then given the name above all names.